This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Today's topic is going to be allergy, and we're going to specifically talk about food allergies. With me today is uh, Dr. Gerald Volchak, a physician and chair of the Division of Allergic Diseases, as well as a course director for the clinical updates in allergy and immunology course to be held in Coronado, California, July 27th through 29th of 2018. Thanks for coming, Jerry. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about food allergies. I get a fair number of patients who come in with a lot of vague symptoms, and they are convinced that these symptoms represent food allergies. How can we uh, suspect a true food allergy? A classic food allergy really should have a, a traditional pattern, and that's once they eat the food, within minutes up to an hour of eating the food, the symptoms should start. And the symptoms should be a combination of histamine release in the body. So like for the skin, it would be itchiness and hives. Uh, For the nose, they may have nasal congestion and sneezing. It could trigger asthma, like from the lungs. Skin, hives, and, and swelling. So those are the classic symptoms. If somebody says, well, I just feel funny or have uh, or headache or, or other very nonspecific things without any signs of histamine release in combination with it, then it's likely not a food allergy. Okay. And in management of patients who we truly feel have food allergies, other than avoiding that food, are there other mechanisms we can use to treat them? Right now, no, but there's a, a couple on the horizon. Um, there's oral, sublingual, and epicutaneous allergy immunotherapy for foods that's currently being studied. This has been studied primarily in children. And some of the studies show that you are able to desensitize to the food while there's continuing on the immunotherapy. But once the immunotherapy is stopped, and then if they have the food again down the road, it doesn't appear that they're safe, mm. that still... or more of the people will react. So exactly where this fits in the treatment is being worked out. Uh, So it shows some promise, but there are concerns about it. Okay. One thing I've noticed in dealing with patients who have allergies is that they seem to improve as we get older. Uh, and if that's the case, that may be one of the only things that gets better as we get older. Is, is, is this accurate? Yeah, it's definitely accurate. Uh, we do see the vast majority of allergy onset in children, young adults, and it does wane uh, as the IG, specific IgE does drop over time. But there are definitely exceptions to the rule. I'll see people in their 60s and even 70s that never had allergies all of a sudden have allergies. But that's the minority. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like asthma. I mean, I think most of the patients I have with asthma had asthma as a younger person and have continued with it. But an occasional patient in middle age or sometimes occasionally older can develop asthma? Yes. Uh, it's termed adult onset asthma. And unfortunately, adult onset asthma tends to be more severe than regular asthma. There appears to be different mechanisms involved with that. Uh, but certainly it's present and it's something to keep in mind if you're seeing somebody with any of that combination of 
cough, wheeze, or shortness of breath. Mm -hmm. And there is a connection or relationship between allergies, allergic rhinitis, and asthma? Yeah, it's it's considered part of the atopic march um, where people, especially children, sometimes it starts with food allergy or, or atopic dermatitis, and then allergic rhinitis, then followed by asthma. And there's also a relationship, too, just with the nose and lungs. Uh, what we're finding more and more, and they call it the united airway hypothesis, is that the more inflamed the nose and sinuses are, it increases the risk for the same process in the lungs. Mm -hmm. Okay. You have a course coming up July 27th through the 29th in uh, Coronado, California. Yes. You want to tell us anything about your course? Sure. Yeah, we're very excited about it because this is our first uh, Division of Allergy CME conference that we're putting on. The focus uh, of it will be on food allergy and food-related uh, immune problems, though we also will be covering asthma, chronic sinusitis, anaphylaxis, immunodeficiency, you know, and a lot of the usual allergy-type conditions. But the staff will include uh, pulmonologists, gastroenterologists, and members of our allergy division. So I, I think it's going to be a great conference. Great. Visit ce.mayo.edu slash allergy2018 and register today. Use the coupon code allergy and receive $100 off the registration fee. Jerry, let's talk a little bit about the clinical manifestations and how we would diagnose oral allergy syndrome. Yeah. Oral allergy syndrome has really come to the fore just in the last 10 to 15 years, and it's a very interesting condition where people with seasonal allergies, such as to the tree grass and weed pollens, will develop oral symptoms, itchiness of the mouth, maybe even slight swelling around the lip whenever they eat fresh fruits and vegetables. And there's certain ones that correlate with the different pollens. For example, if somebody has a birch allergy that you know, results in allergic rhinitis, oftentimes if they eat an apple, they'll develop itchiness of the mouth and funny sensation in the mouth. And it's related to the cross-reactivity between the substances that are in an apple and the substances in birch tree pollen. Hmm. Interesting. Fortunately, those folks, though, don't have an anaphylactic reaction to that. And if they would have an apple in cooked form, such as baked apple pie, they're usually able to eat that without the development of symptoms. Hmm. Okay. What are the best methods we have to test for food allergies? Right now, there's primarily two. One is the skin prick testing, which is the traditional allergy testing. A drop of the substance is put on the arm, then the skin is pricked and you look for a local hive to form there in 15 minutes. And then there's also blood tests that measure specific IgE to the foods. One of the primary issues though with food allergy testing is that it's not 100% accurate. There's a high number of false positives. So we're really going away from just doing large panels of food allergy tests in people because of that high false positivity. But if there's clinical suspicion, you want to kind of hone it down to the things that are possibly causing the reaction that they're describing. Mm -hmm. If we send a patient for 
allergy tests, should we have them uh, avoid various medications prior to their testing? Yes, and the key ones are the antihistamines. So for the non-sedating antihistamines like your Claritin, Allegra, Zyrtec, you would want them to be off of those for four or five days prior to the testing so they don't interfere. Okay. So how would you summarize the top recommendations that we should give our patients to those who have food allergies? Right now, I I would say we're still in the mode where avoidance is our primary treatment. And by avoidance, it means not just avoiding that food, but also avoiding possible cross-reactive foods and a lot of instruction on where that food may be hidden in other foods. Uh, And that all just depends on on the type, you Mm -hmm. know, uh, of food allergy. And then also another key component is making sure the patient has an EpiPen and knows how to use it. that would be the key treatment in the setting of an inadvertent ingestion then. And it would be important that that be utilized right away if the patient is developing symptoms. I can imagine that patients who have fairly serious food allergies can find it uh, a little bit challenging, even going to a restaurant, not knowing exactly what they're cooking with or what kind of oil they're using and spices and so forth. Yeah, it's a difficult problem to deal with. Uh, Fortunately, people... Uh, over time, you know, start to figure this out and become more comfortable with it. And there are a lot of resources to get help with this. Uh, One of the most common uh, ones that we push is the Food Allergy and Anaphylaxis Network. Uh, They have very practical advice on what to do at restaurants or, you know, how how to handle the the picnic, uh, et cetera, and things like that. I know one of the hottest topics in food allergies is that of a peanut allergy. Um, I know one of the airlines that I frequently fly has continued to serve peanuts until recently, and I kept thinking the last thing you want to happen at 30,000 feet is some severe reaction to a peanut. But what's the latest in uh, peanut allergies? Yeah, there is really a lot of activity in peanut allergy right now. Firstly, from the preventive standpoint, Uh, A huge study came out in 2015 called the LEAP study that basically showed that if you start feeding peanut at a very young age, you know, four to six months, that the likelihood of developing peanut allergy decreases instead of increases. This completely turned our thinking around because before the thought always was, you should avoid peanut or other highly allergenic foods until like age three or, or something like that. But this is, has completely turned the tide. So now there is a big push for children that are high risk for peanut allergy, and those are ones with severe atopic dermatitis or concomitant egg allergy, of all things, that are, at, are considered at, at higher risk for peanut allergy. And the current new recommendations are if they're, in, if they're in those two groups, egg allergy or severe eczema in the four to six month age range, they should have a skin test for peanut. And if it's negative, then they should start incorporating peanut in their diet as a way of preventing peanut allergy from happening. Mm-hmm. You mentioned children with atopic dermatitis or egg allergy. What about children who don't have atopic dermatitis or ag- allergy and peanut sensitivity, should they still ingest peanuts at an early age? 
The LEAP study didn't really look at that group, but the new practice parameters based on, on what we do know about this are recommending earlier ingestion for those children, but more specifically, not to avoid it. Uh, again, getting back where things have flipped with this, where avoidance does not appear to be protective. If anything, it makes it worse. So it would be recommended to try and incorporate that earlier in the diet. Okay. Let's say a child has known peanut allergy and they have a new brother or sister. Should that uh, sibling be tested? I, I assume there's a greater likelihood that they may have the same allergy or, or maybe yeah. not. Yeah, it's, it's a controversial subject right now. There isn't a set guideline on whether they should be tested or not. It does appear their risk is increased. So instead of it being you know, around that 0.5 or 1%, or 1%, it probably goes up more to about 8%. So it's still not likely, but it's much greater than the general population. Given some of the issues with false positivity with food testing, that's what raises the question with this. So a lot depends on the family's comfort level, uh, what the household situation is like, and also if that child has any concomitant other comorbidities, you know, other food allergies, atopic eczema that would drive the testing one way or the other. And are peanut allergies similar to other allergies where a child may eventually grow out of the allergy and uh, be able to eat peanuts again? Or uh, Unfortunately not. Uh, the numbers that we have with peanut allergy is only about 20% will outgrow that, as opposed to milk, egg, wheat, other you know common allergies in kids where over 90% will outgrow it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we've been talking about allergies with Dr. Gerald Bolchek, a physician and chair of the Division of Allergic Diseases. Uh, Jerry, thank you so much for coming here today. Oh, thanks for this opportunity. Many of you have asked how you can experience Mayo Clinic medical education firsthand. See our full catalog of live and online CME courses at ce.mayo.edu. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.